So Genesis chapter 21, beginning with the first verse. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Well, let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts and in my voice. We pray that you would be near to us that you would draw our hearts to you, that you would push aside distractions, that you would make us teachable, that we would be like clay in your hands. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Minnesota inheritance law treats siblings and half-siblings equally in terms of who gets a share of the deceased's estate. Now, this may seem completely inconsequential to you, and it is, but it's of great importance to the purportedly 600, 
to 700 people who are claiming to be the half-sibling of the now-deceased musician Prince. Everybody wants a share of his wealth. When there's money involved, people come out of the woodwork. And you know, sometimes they don't even have to fight with other people. Sometimes they have to duke it out with a dog. A billionaire known as the Queen of Mean, Leona Helmsley infamously disinherited two of her own grandchildren, quote, for reasons that are known to them, said the will. But Helmsley's little dog, Trouble, received $12 million. In court, that number was reduced to $2 million, and the two disinherited grandchildren received $6 million of the dog's money. Helmsley died in August 2007, and little trouble kept on going until December 2010. You know, the dog actually faced death threats, but with a $100,000 a year security team, you can be guaranteed that trouble died of natural causes. Well, in Genesis 21, we have a dispute between half-brothers, Isaac and Ishmael. But even more, it's a dispute between two mothers, Sarah and Hagar. And like all disputes, it's important to get the backstory of the family feud right. So inheritance may not be on our minds, but it was to Abraham and to Sarah and to Hagar. In Genesis 15, when God says, Abraham, your reward will be very great. His immediate response, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. What does it matter what you give to me, O God, if I have nobody to give it to? In Genesis 16, Sarah takes Hagar, if you remember, and gives her to Abraham as a wife and Hagar gets pregnant. Hagar looks with contempt upon Sarah, who begins to mistreat her, so she runs away. But God finds her and says, Hagar, no, no, go back. Go back. And so that means that Ishmael is born in Abraham's house, the firstborn son. In Genesis 17, Abraham appears to Abra- uh, God appears to Abraham again and tells him Sarah will have a son. What's Abraham's immediate response? Oh, that Ishmael may walk before you, that he may live before you. And God says, no, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. Now, in Genesis 21, the passage before it's it's been decades since the promise was given. And it's about 14 years After Ishmael was born. So now Abraham has a son with Sarah. And we know that when Ishmael was born, Eliezer of Damascus got kicked to the curb, right? He was no longer the heir. Well, now Isaac is born. And what is going to happen? After all, Ishmael is still Abraham's firstborn son. Well, now that we have the backstory, let's consider this passage under three headings. Three laughs, two sons, and one God. 
So usually we try to do alliteration, but here I'm doing numerology. So three laughs, two sons, and one God. First, let's consider three laughs. We see them in verses 1 to 9. In verse 3 of chapter 21, Abraham names Sarah's son Isaac, and the name means he laughs. And the Lord named the boy even before he was conceived in Genesis 17. And in Genesis 18, when God appears to Abraham and says, Sarah's going to have a boy, Sarah's listening and she laughs. She says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And when confronted by God over her laughter, she lies. She denies it. I did not laugh, she said. No, but you did laugh, God replies. So there's one kind of laughter, the laughter of unbelief, the laughter of unbelief. But notice in Genesis 21, there's a second kind of laughter of inexplicable joy. When Sarah says in Genesis chapter 21, verse six, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She's not talking about the laughter of unbelief. I can imagine she has a twinkle in her eye, a spring in her step. Then in verse seven, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? She's expressing her joy. Now, there's an irony here because we know the answer is who told her? Well, the Lord himself, the Lord himself said that you were going to have a, a child. But no matter, verse seven, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, there's something special, isn't there, about doing something later in life that's usually reserved for young people. I remember being in my parents' garage, and I don't even remember why my dad and I were in there, but we were looking up at the rafters in the garage, and we were talking, and my dad's a big man, and we were talking, and I said, I wonder whether one of us could spring into the air, grab the top of the rafter, which is pretty high, and do a pull-up. And my old man said, I can do it. Yeah, right. Well, he crouched like a tiger, sprang like a dragon, soared through the air, caught the top of the rafter, and did a pull-up. And I would be lying to you if I said that when my father floated down to the ground, he was anything but extremely pleased with himself. (laughs) There's something great, isn't there, about Sarah saying, I thought... I was a shriveled up raisin, but God has given me my firstborn son. Real joy. And this joy leads into the feast of verse 8. Isaac is weaned, so he's probably around three years old. And Abraham makes a great feast. Now, we're not sure why he gets a big feast on the day he's weaned as opposed to the day he's born or the day he's circumcised. But when it's time to celebrate, they do. And that's the second kind of laughter, joy. But there's a third and final laughter in verse 9. It's the laughter of the unnamed son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom we know to be Ishmael. Sarah sees it and she erupts with rage. Verse 10, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, let's let's um, 
clear up any wrong impressions that we could have about Sarah's response. Remember, Ishmael is about 14 years older than Isaac. So Ishmael's 16 or 17 years old if Isaac is around three. And Paul in Galatians 4 goes so far as to say that Ishmael persecutes Isaac. So this isn't the case of a four-year-old grabbing a toy from his three-year-old half-brother. No, it's a young adult scornfully mocking a little boy. It's not just an undesirable situation. It's a dangerous one. So three laughs. And it's, it's important for us to ask, what makes us laugh? Do we laugh, enjoy at God's blessings? Or do we roll our eyes at his promises? Do, do we light in God's goodness? Or do we angrily mock those whom the Lord seems to favor more than us? What makes us angry and what makes us sad? What brings us joy? What causes us sorrow? These things reveal our hearts more than an hour of conversation. So let's pray that we would have joy at the things of the Lord. That we would have joy in his blessings and the promises that he gives us. So three laughs. Now, moving right along, two sons. Let's consider Isaac first. Isaac's the promised son, verse 1. He's born to Sarah, verses 2 and 3. And he is marked as an infant with the sign of the covenant, separating him from the world, verse 4. Circumcision is both bloody and painful. But Abraham circumcises Isaac just as the Lord commanded, verse 4. That's Isaac, son of the promise. Ishmael is the son of Hagar the Egyptian, verse 9. A slave woman, verse 10. Sarah wants the boy and the mother gone. We talked about that. But Abraham finds his requ- her request very displeasing. Verse 11. Why? Because he loves Ishmael. He's as much a son to Abraham as Isaac is. But God tells Abraham not to worry. Verse 12. Tells him two things. First, he instructs Abraham how this inheritance dispute will be resolved. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Ishmael is out of the loop. But also, but but God also gives Abraham a word of comfort. He tells Abraham that he personally will look after Ishmael's well-being. Verse 13. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also. Because he is your offspring. The result? Abraham, just like Abimelech in chapter 20, rises early in the morning, verse 14, and gives Hagar and Ishmael provisions and then sends them away. One idea based on ancient testimonial evidence is that Abraham is actually giving Hagar and Ishmael their freedom in exchange for their promise not to claim his inheritance. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's one possibility. Anyway, in verses 15 to 19, we see that Hagar and Ishmael have a hard time at first. It seems all the more poignant 
because the passage doesn't name Ishmael and simply calls him a boy. But remember, Ishmael at this point is about 16 or 17 years old. Boy speaks to his immaturity, not to his age. In our church, we talk about elders, but it doesn't mean that those people are senior citizens. It simply means that they're somehow spiritually mature. So this he's a boy, but he's still old enough as a teenager to be of great help to his mother. But he's not. So we, we, um, the situation gets desperate, and they're crying out to the Lord, and God hears Ishmael's cry, but addresses Hagar, verse 17. And he comforts her by relaying to her the exact thing that he told Abraham. I will make him into a great nation. Don't you worry, your son, I'll make him into a great nation. And God opens her eyes, gives her practical help so that she can see that there's water nearby, verse 19. And so the result is that they drink the water and live. And he grows up, becomes an expert with the bow. His wife gets him a wife from Egypt, verses 20 and 21. So we have two sons. Both Isaac and Ishmael are sons of Abraham. But as one commentator pointed out, it's not enough to claim Abraham as our father. The crucial question concerns who the mother is. Isaac is the son of Sarah, a gift of God, a gracious promise made true by God. Ishmael is the son of Hagar, the product of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief in the promises of God. And Ishmael even persecutes his little brother. Now, I think Isaac and Ishmael can teach us three things. I'll move through these quickly. First, we can distinguish in Isaac and Ishmael false religion from true religion. False religion looks to man's effort. True religion trusts in God's promises. Second, we can expect false religion to persecute true religion. Ishmael persecutes Isaac. And then finally... There's a warning, especially to those growing up in the church, not to walk away from the precious promises of God. So, first, true and false religion. Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that these two sons serve as an allegory of two covenants. Ishmael represents a covenant of the flesh, Mount Sinai, offering slavery to us sinners. But Isaac represents a covenant of grace, The heavenly Jerusalem promising freedom. The religion of Ishmael is focused on man's work. The religion of Isaac is one of promise. Trusting that God will do what he has said he would do. By Jesus' day, Jews looked back to this Old Testament passage to say that they were the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But everybody else were sons of Ishmael and And all those other, the Gentiles, they were, you know, cast off from God. But Paul uses this passage to turn the tables on them. He says that the true sons of Isaac, the true sons of Abraham, are those who trust in God's promises, who live in freedom, who don't look to the law to establish their righteousness. Abraham had Ishmael, remember, because Abraham and Sarah wanted to make God's promises true 
through their own effort. And there are some today who hear God's promises of rescue from sin and the promise of heaven forever. And they hear that promise and their response is, all right, I will help God along. Or I will make this happen. I will show God how good I am. But friends, that is not the way of Isaac. That is the way of Ishmael. You have God's promises. You bring to him your need, your sin, and your helplessness, not your strength. You trust in what he can do, not in what you can do. In Luke chapter 18, when Jesus, uh, Jesus tells the story of a religious leader who's, who's praying, and he actually uh, sees a tax collector by him, and the tax collector calls out and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the the religious leader says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. And he lists some bad people. And he says, or even like this tax collector here. But Jesus makes clear who goes home right with God. It's not the one who says, well, I fast and I give a tithe of all that I'm given. No, it's the one who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So false religion looks to man's effort. True religion trusts in God's promises. Second, false religion regularly troubles true religion. Ishmael troubles Isaac, mocks Isaac, and looks down on Isaac, even though Isaac is the son of the promise and that cannot be taken from him. Now, a passage uh, from John Stott is worth quoting in full here, so you'll indulge me. The persecution of the true church of Christian believers who trace their spiritual descent from Abraham is not always by the world who are strangers unrelated to us, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. It has always been so. The Lord Jesus was bitterly opposed, rejected, mocked, and condemned by his own nation. The fiercest opponents of the Apostle Paul, who dogged his footsteps and stirred up strife against him, were the official church, the Jews. The monolithic structure of the medieval papacy persecuted all Protestant minorities with ruthless, unremitting ferocity. And the greatest enemies of the evangelical faith today are not unbelievers who, when they hear the gospel, often embrace it. But the church, the establishment, the hierarchy, Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. Well, did you know, I don't know if you saw it in the news, but this month, literally this month, July 2016, Vladimir Putin signed into law legislation that would restrict missionary activity in Russia. And though not the official state religion, the Russian Orthodox Church has close ties with the government. The patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church even called Putin a miracle of God. So Christian missionaries and missionary groups will face extremely high fines if they simply try to tell people about Jesus. But the Russian Orthodox Church will get a pass because they'll be able to claim that the Russian people are Orthodox and so they're not actually evangelizing them. So it's this power play. Well, how could people who call themselves Christians prevent other people from talking about Jesus? The Bible teaches us not to be surprised. In fact, we should expect persecution from our spiritual half-brothers. 
Now, the two sons give us one final warning, and it's one that I address chiefly to the children of the church. Like Isaac and like Ishmael, you have been marked off from the world by an ordinance. You have been baptized in the church. You have been nurtured at her bosom. And you can live in the religion of Isaac. You can trust in God's promises. You can rest in him. Or, like Ishmael, you can mock sincere belief and walk away from the faith of your parents. As one commentator puts it, none are rejected and cast out from God, but those who have first deserved it. Ishmael is continued in Abraham's family till he becomes a disturbance, grief, and scandal to it. Likewise, you children, you find yourself safe in the church. It offers you a shelter from the storms, the rough seas of the world. But make no mistake, today is the day to embrace the faith of your parents, if you haven't already. Having been baptized, having been marked as Isaac was with a sign of the covenant, you should pledge yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord. I guarantee each and every one of you children that I do not wish a single one of you to become a disturbance, a grief, or a scandal to your family or to the church. So trust in the Lord Jesus. Being raised a Christian does not make you one. Trusting in the Lord's promises does. So they're two sons. May all our children turn out to be like Isaac. So three laughs, unbelief, joy, and mocking. Two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. But finally, one, God. The one who laughs last, the one who laughs loudest and best, is the Lord God Almighty himself. Who is the hero of this story? It's not Abraham. Brow beaten by his wife or Sarah who comes across as petty and overprotective or Ishmael who mocks his little baby half-brother or even Hagar who can't even seem to see a well of water that's right in front of her. And it's not Isaac who's just a little boy. The hero of Genesis 21 is the hero of the whole Bible, the Lord God Almighty. Think about Genesis 21, 1 to 21. It's the Lord who visited Sarah, as he said, and did to Sarah, as he promised, verse 1. At the time that he had planned, verse 2, God commanded circumcision. Abraham didn't think it up himself, but God commanded it, and so Abraham did it, verse 4. God has has given me laughter, Sarah says in verse 6. God says to uh, to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be be named, verse 12. And and God says, and I'll I'll make a great nation... Of your other son, because he's your offspring. Verse 13, when Ishmael cries out, it's God who hears the voice of the boy. Verse 17, it's God who opens Hagar's eyes. Verse 19, and it is God God who is with Ishmael. Verse 20, and he grew up. Thousands of years ago, a man gave into his wife's plea. And got rid of his mistress and their kid, a slave woman. It's the stuff of Italian opera or a play from ancient Greece or Rome. 
If the one true God of the universe had nothing to do with it, it would be the subject of university dissertations or an exhibit at a museum, a curiosity, a legend. But instead, it's true history, and it's true history that points to a big truth. God makes a promise, and God keeps a promise. God provides, and He protects. God causes children to grow up, and He blesses them. God provides for the homeless. He looks out for the needy. Life seems so haphazard, so disjointed. Our world seems so broken, and it and, and something wells up within us. I've got to fix this. We've got to fix this. But we need to be reminded that we are the problem and not the solution. And we can rest in God's promises or we can try to go it our own way. And God's way seems hard. Trusting in His promises. Submitting to His authority. Waiting patiently for His timing. But in the end, it brings peace and freedom. Our own way, by contrast, seems easy. Doing what we want to do. Living our own lives. But in the end, it brings slavery and death. So we started with inheritance, we'll end with it. So what is the true inheritance of Abraham? It's peace in this life and heaven with God forever. Now, who gets Abraham's inheritance? Paul makes clear in Galatians 3 that it's, it's not those keeping the law. It's not those who can work it all out themselves. He points out in Galatians 3 that the law came 430 years after Abraham received the promise. Who are the sons of Abraham then? Know then, Paul says, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. A great inheritance awaits you, heaven itself, if you will but put your trust in God and in his promises. As we see in Genesis 21... He is worthy of your trust. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts that which is pleasing to you. That you would bring us ever closer to you. That you would open our blind eyes. That you would clear our thoughts. That you would set fire to our hearts. Lord, we can do nothing but throw ourselves at your feet. God, have mercy on us, sinners that we are. Give us joy and laughter in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.